Welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a podcast about possible and not so possible futures. Every week we take on a specific potential tomorrow and try to really overthink what it might be like. Every episode starts with a trip to the future before we zip back to now and talk to experts about what we just heard and what it would really be like. Got it? Great. This week, let's start in the year 2029. Good morning, Sam. You slept for a total of five hours last night, but with frequent interruptions. Tomorrow night, try playing some calming music at 62 beats per minute and drinking a glass of water at 1045. Statistically, those things correlate with deeper sleep for you. Remember, sleep is the foundation on which your day is built. Yogurt, strawberries, honey, total calories, 213. Next time, try cutting the honey. Strawberries are sweet enough as they are. Your health is important, Sam. Your heart rate is elevated. Take a deep breath. This is the fastest route to your destination. Would you like me to play some meditative music? Welcome to Peppy's. How can I help you? Uh, yeah, I'll have a, um, I think a number four with a Diet Coke and... Hamburgers are full of saturated fats and salts. Are you sure you don't want to make another choice? And a large fries. Your health is important, Sam. There is tension in your back. Focus your gaze on the end of your nose. Lift your chest. Breathe deeply in through your nose. Feel the vertebrae straighten and lengthen. Bad posture can take years off your life. This month you've spent $342 on pet supplies. We estimate that your dog supplies about $250 worth of happiness for you. Try cutting back on this expense. night, Sam. Did you drink a glass of water yet? Drinking water before bed is correlated with better sleep for you. I will wake you at 6.30 to walk the dog. Sleep tight. Okay, so today we are taking on the future of our quantified lives. A future in which every food we eat, every hour we sleep, every poop we take, every elevated heartbeat, every, yes, every breath we take is counted, logged, measured, and compared to our own baseline and to the rest of the world. 
Quantified self is what this is called, and if you count calories or steps, you already do this, and the future is probably full of even more of it. Since this is a big topic, today's episode is going to be a little bit longer than usual, and we're going to talk to a bunch of different people working on different aspects of the future of the quantified life. But let's start with someone who's living this quantified life today. What kind of businesses are you looking for? Oh my gosh, Siri just came up. Did you hear her? It was so funny. Yeah, she said, what kind of businesses are you looking for in Tennessee? I didn't even say Siri. That's so weird. See, I'm telling you, they're monitoring me. So <laughs> This is Chris Dancy. He's been called the most quantified man in the world. Every day, Chris wears and carries around the following sensors. A clip-on camera, Google Glass, two different Fitbits, two different Jawbones, an Apple Watch, a Pebble Watch, a Samsung Watch, two different heart rate monitors, a posture sensor, an iPhone, a Galaxy phone, an EEG monitoring headband, a calorie-tracking armband, a respiration tracker, a thermometer, a band that stimulates the nerves in his head, and more. He also wears devices that help him control and interface with all the data he's gathering, like a smart ring and an armband that can control his technology using gestures. In his house, Chris has sensors that measure air quality, temperature, all sorts of stuff, and those sync up with his personal data. So just like, you know, sleeping data is fine, but without environmental data in your bedroom, sleeping data is useless. Because there's so many things that can happen outside of your body while you're in bed that affect your sleep. All of these are also hooked up to systems that control various pieces of his house. So if his heart rate gets elevated, for example, the lights in his office dim to soothe him. But before Chris was the most quantified man in the world, he was just a regular guy working in tech. And he was in pretty bad shape. My health was kind of crap. I had a bunch of companies who were propping me up, basically allowing me to continue, you know, behaving in unfortunate ways, Uh, you know, just a lot of drugs and drinking and prescriptions and shit like that. So I I was, you know, 300 pounds chain smoking mess still, right? It was not pretty. As a way to try and get a hold of his life, Chris started quantifying it, from the quality of the air he was breathing to his mental states to exercise. In 2010, he started using a clunky series of fake Google accounts, Twitter profiles, and spreadsheets. Eventually, he put all of that information into a Google calendar. Moved everything into 10 categories by 2011, being everything from financial to spiritual to environmental to physical. So they, they'd be weighted properly coming in. They'd be then categorized and then color-coded. If you look at this calendar, which you can on his website, it's overwhelming. There's just a ton of information in all of these colorful boxes on every day. I have no idea how he makes sense of any of it, but he was able to take this information and actually use it. So I just basically started saying, on days when I do X... What do they look like? What does the color coding look like? You know, what is the specifics? If I look in diary view of of a Google calendar and I just started creating more days like the days I liked and I started looking for reasons why things were seemingly linked. Sometimes they were linked, sometimes they weren't. But just the belief that I had control was enough. In 2013, the outside world got word of Chris Dancy. He was on the cover of magazines, profiled by Wired, invited to speak all over the world about his life. There are a bunch of video profiles of him on the internet, which you can watch, and we'll post links to them on our site. But as I was watching a few of them, I felt kind of uncomfortable, because a lot of them treat Chris kind of like a freak show. Like this weirdo guy that we should all laugh at or shun or see as this maniac with too many devices. But in talking to Chris, it's become very clear to me that he's really thoughtful about what he's doing. The point isn't just to track for tracking's sake. Chris is on a mission, and it's the same mission that you or I might have when we start tracking steps or workouts or calories or menstrual cycles. To feel better, 
to be happier and healthier. And for Chris, at least, it worked. Within 18 months, I dropped 100 pounds and I quit smoking. I was off my blood pressure medicine, off my antidepressants, off of drinking, wasn't using drugs as much. It was just crazy. A lot of people have called Chris the most quantified man or the most surveilled man or the most tracked man. But he thinks about it in another way. He calls himself a mindful cyborg. A mindful cyborg versus, you know, a freak with too much Fitbit. Today, being a mindful cyborg is basically Chris's entire job. It's what he does. And it's a lot of work. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's crazy. No one ever asked me about the work. God bless you. Um, It was crazy amounts of work. I mean, having hundreds of fake Twitter accounts is ridiculous just in managing it, not to mention how many emails you have to opt out of from Twitter. I spend about $30,000 a year on my quantified self, which is a ridiculous amount of money. And he recognizes that most of us don't have the time or the money to be mindful cyborgs. But if Chris is living in the future today... What does he see coming? Well, in the future, it's pretty clear that data collection is probably going to be even more ubiquitous. And Chris doesn't actually see this as necessarily a good thing. Because right now, Chris uses all of these devices to gather data, but he sometimes has to fight the companies to actually get access to that data. In most cases, he has to buy it back from them in order to use it for what he wants. Right now, we're definitely headed toward the dark future where people are having to buy back their data and companies are figuring out increasing ways to to harvest our behavior. We are way deep on the dark side of the woods, in my opinion, right now, because we just haven't really thought about all the choice that's being removed systematically for the sake of convenience. To dig a little deeper into the possible dark side of personal tracking, I called Claire North. Obviously, like every other human being on Surf the Earth, really, who's connected in this internet age, I've gone through all the things of must exercise more, must eat better, don't like exercising, don't like eating better. Ah, how shall I motivate myself? And the motivate yourself is a massive part of it. And so, you know, I've dabbled in productivity apps and calorie counting apps. and I've usually rejected them all after about a week with a cry of I hate everything about this and what it's doing to me. Claire is the author of a science fiction book called The Sudden Appearance of Hope that's coming out this summer. The main character, Hope, sort of has the opposite of face blindness. She's totally unmemorable to anyone who meets her. You can meet her, talk with her, have dinner with her, but the second you turn your back, you begin to forget her. This makes Hope a really good thief. And the book started out as a book about thieving. Hope running around, stealing diamonds and evading the police. But as Claire was writing it, she started getting interested in something else. The fact that without any friends or family or other humans that can even remember her, Hope has no real way of measuring her life. As so yeah, I got very interesting kind of apps and social media and all the technology that we use day to day to kind of tell us, well done, you have eaten 400 calories. This is good. And kind of all the, you, I am monitoring you going running stuff and kind of this world build up of a life that's sort of told whether it's any good by a machine. The book kind of centers around this app called Perfection. Users give it access to everything, their bank accounts, their location, what they're eating and drinking, who they're hanging out with, how they're sleeping, everything. And in return, the app gives them suggestions. Don't eat there, eat here. Don't do that, do this. And when users link up their accounts and comply with the app's instructions, they get perks, coupons to restaurants, or access to special events. Users who get enough points even get plastic surgery. Hey, you want to be perfect? 
we've got this great tie-in de- deal with a guy who'll fix your nose. And it starts to eat every part of your life, mind every aspect of your data, from what you eat to what you spend to how you look. Um, and becomes quite sinister. But to me, the thing that's the most sinister about perfection isn't that it offers you plastic surgery. It's the way that the app decides what perfection actually is. The deeper you get into it, the more you realize that the lifestyle you desire is actually tailored by perfection. It's not necessarily helping you achieve what you want to be. It has a very strong algorithmic basis which says what you want to be is essentially what the internet says you should be. If you are a woman, you want to be skinny, you want to be rich, you want to be charming. If you're a man, you also want to be rich, but you probably want to be muscly and you want to own a car. And so perfection becomes less about who you are as an individual and more about you achieving this celebrity lifestyle notion of being the perfect person, the perfect human being. And that's a real danger with data-based algorithms today. When you live a quantified life, you're giving companies access to data. And companies are mining that data for insights about you and what you want. So the story goes something like this. Grocery stores wanted to know which items people bought at the same time so they could put them in close proximity to each other. So if you picked up one, the other thing that you're likely to get would be right nearby it. So they collected a lot of data on what people would tend to buy in a store. So you have a person coming in, they buy a bunch of items, you have a record of all the things they buy. So you have this gigantic table you know, of, of people and what they buy, and they want to find things that show up commonly together a lot. And allegedly, they would find that beer and diapers are often bought together a lot. You know, surmising, you know, the stressed out new father, you know, <laughs> who has to buy diapers and is there for getting some beer along with it. And then the argument is, okay, maybe you want to put these things close by so that you could, you know, if when you buy diapers, oh, the beer is right nearby and you can pick it up. That's Suresh Venkatasubramanian. And I'm an associate professor in computer science at the University of Utah. Suresh works on something called algorithmic fairness, a question of how to make these systems that mine data less biased. This might sound kind of weird. How can data mining be biased? But remember, algorithms are made by humans, and humans are full of latent bias. So uh, with the work on, I think, algorithmic fairness, we are attacking this issue head on in the sense that the people who are thinking about these problems, right, the large growing group of people thinking about this, they're thinking precisely about how to prevent these from being weaponized. (laughs) The weaponization is happening already. People are using machine learning for all kinds of purposes. And in fact, we're saying, no, 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 let's, you know, try to make them a bit more reasonable in what they're doing. So an algorithm might take all the personal data that it's fed and start making decisions about you based on your race or your gender. And if that happens when you're being sold books on Amazon, it sucks, but it's not the end of the world. But if it happens in other cases, it can be really, really bad. And one of the places that Suresh is the most worried about is the judicial system. More and more courts in the United States are using algorithms to help decide whether or not someone should be allowed bail. They basically take a bunch of personal data, put it in an algorithm, and then have the algorithm spit out a decision about how likely it thinks that person is to wind up back in jail. So the way this works, at least with one of the systems, there's this extensive questionnaire that is conducted by uh, some kind of uh, trained personnel at the jail with the person who's being released. And um, there's this, you know, set of 130 questions, and they ask them all kinds of questions. These range from basic, you know, where did you live before this? What was your family? And to more general questions of do you feel anxious? Do you feel depressed? Do you feel anxious? You know, things like that. And these answers to these questions are put into this model, 
which is you know proprietary and is you know built by a private entity, and out spits out a set of recommendations or set of predictions. And um, the input going in is a combination of your personal data, information about your past, your friends, your network, information about your social network, information about your feelings, your mental state, all kinds of factors are going in. And coming out is this prediction. But since the algorithm itself here is a black box, it's proprietary, and nobody really knows how it works, no one knows if it's discriminating against prisoners based on their race or their gender or some other variable. This is an extreme example, but it encapsulates some of the ways that companies might use your personal data against you in the future. I like I call sometimes phone fracking. So like, what can you get out of your phone if you were to like say, how do I empty out every single app? How do I empty out all the sensors? And how do I rearrange it? in a nice way. And I think you know, that's really scary because like if people are already thinking about that, you know companies already have. And you wonder like when and how that's going to be implemented. When I was reading Claire's book, I actually thought that the name of the app, Perfection, was kind of on the nose. I thought certainly our future terrifying personal data app would have a softer, slicker name, maybe you or well or something like that. But a couple weeks ago, I went to a body hacking conference in Austin, and I walked into the main ballroom where the first talk was being given, and up on the stage, behind the podium, there was a huge banner, and it said, nobody's perfect, yet. Which is so creepy. So, of course, I immediately took a picture and sent it to Claire. It was wonderful. It kind of thrilled me and horrified me all at once. I really appreciate it. Yay! Now, part of what makes this kind of creepy is that you're giving a big company access to your personal data, and you don't necessarily know what they're going to do with it or how well they're going to protect it. Breaches of healthcare data have gone up exponentially. There's just more data to breach and more people motivated to do it. So, yeah, privacy and security, I think, is a, is a huge drawback. That's Jessica Richman. And if she sounds familiar, it's because we talked to her last week for our episode on the microbiome. Jessica is the founder and CEO of Ubiome, a company that will sequence your microbiome for you. And in the future, that kind of personal data might be really useful to do things like predict which drugs will work for you or cure infections and diseases or solve murder cases. The microbiome is an interesting example because like a lot of other personal data, it's only really useful if it's connected to other people's data and the rest of your health data. Having a big list of species of microbes in your gut isn't super useful unless you know what that means, whether that's normal or whether that changes when you're feeling weird. And Jessica is well aware that she's handling a lot of sensitive data. I don't I don't mean to be a, you know, techno utopian here. I mean, there are huge, I mean, their privacy is something that's always in my mind about this because there are some really terrifying implications of this. Like, it's great. You know about your health and you can predict all these things are going to happen. But what about the government and the insurance company that you don't want to know? And, you know, in other individuals that you may, your employer and all these other people you may not want to know. So privacy is a huge, huge aspect of this. Sometimes, to me at least, talking about personal data and what I should or shouldn't be tracking or doing with it can be really overwhelming. There's just so much of it. Like, what am I supposed to track? What am I not supposed to track? How am I supposed to keep it secure? I mean, Chris tracks so many different variables that I can't even begin to list all of them here. So coming up, we're going to dive into one particular type of data that people track and talk through how that particular type of data might change in the future. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. 
So this week, we've been talking about the future of our quantified lives, and that ranges across so many different arenas. We've talked about everything from data that determines whether you're let out of prison to data that tells you what bacteria live inside your guts. But there's this problem with the quantified self that comes up a lot, and that's that the things that we are tracking aren't always the things that are the most useful. There's a, a mathematician named Richard Tapa who said, we don't know how to measure what we care about. So we care about what we measure. And I want to take a closer look at one particular form of quantified self that might be exactly that. Something that we're measuring not because it's useful, but because we know how to measure it. It's one of the most common forms of tracking, and it's one that people have been doing for a long time, way before apps. And that's calorie counting. Today, there are approximately a billion apps that can help you track your food intake. And most of them take information about all the food you ate that day and then combine it into some kind of report. Today, you ate this many calories. Your target was that many calories. Good job, you hit your goal. Or, oops, you went over, try cutting back tomorrow. But I learned recently that the calorie might be kind of a red herring. Well, I mean, I ended up just thinking that it's really not a useful thing at all. It is broken. It's wrong in all sorts of interesting ways. It just made me realize, I think, that we measure the, the calorie, but it's not the right thing for us to measure. That's Nicola Twilley, and this is Cynthia Graber. And so I was a little bit different from Nikki here. I agree with what she said, obviously. And I, I think that there are a lot of problems with the calorie. But I actually think that for a lot of people who are trying to lose weight, and that is a lot of people... It, it's kind of one of the measurements that they can use, as flawed as it is. It, it gives a really good, um, it's a, it gives a good comparison. So you can say, well, in theory, you know, this salmon dish might have less calories than that huge cheeseburger and French fries. Nikki and Cynthia make a podcast called Gastropod that's all about food. And it's awesome. You should totally go listen to it. My favorite episode so far is about Mezcal, and it's the reason that I now have six bottles of Mezcal at home. So if you want to send me Mezcal, I will not say no. Anyway, on a recent episode of Gastropod, they investigated the calorie, that ubiquitous little number on all of the food labels that we see all the time. But Cynthia and Nikki asked some questions that I actually had never considered, like, what is a calorie? How is it measured? And perhaps most importantly, is it useful? I was really, really, really sort of intrigued once you start looking at the history of the calorie. You realize it came out of an era where getting people enough food is what mattered. Um, and, and that was the struggle. And now so many of us, not everybody, but so many of us live in an environment where there's way too many available calories. And still we're obsessing about measuring this, our food in this one way which is all flawed and broken and which we can't do accurately at home anyway. And and so why? Why when there are other ways to think about food? So I came out of it being like, ditch the calorie. The calorie, it turns out, is not a particularly useful way of measuring what you're getting from food. Because the amount of calories that it says on the package doesn't necessarily represent the amount of calories you actually get when you eat that package or the food inside of it. Don't eat the package. Cynthia and Nikki talked to one scientist who found that if you eat a pack of almonds that was, according to the calorie measure on the wrapper, 100 calories, your body actually only gets about 70 of those calories. That's a 30% difference. Plus, each person breaks down and absorbs energy from food differently. So 100 calories to me isn't necessarily 100 calories to you. Yeah, and and... And the idea that it's 100 like that, it gives you this false sense. Like, okay, well, I can have this whole packet of, 
of 100-calorie cookies because it's only a 100-calorie snack pack, and I'll just, like, do an extra five minutes on the Stairmaster, and then I'm all set. And it's like, it really doesn't actually work like that, and it gives you this false sense that you can make these sort of accounting decisions with your intake um, that are that are much more precise than they really are. Yeah, it's definitely not like taxes. You cannot be an accountant for your calories. So if counting calories isn't actually telling us what we think it is, what should we count instead? There's no way that our future does not involve some kind of food-related tracking. Instead of tracking calories, Cynthia and Nikki say that we'll probably be tracking other things, a whole bunch of variables that then combine to give you a personalized readout of exactly what you should be eating. To get that personal readout, we'll probably be combining a whole lot of other personal data, like our microbiome. Maybe I just sampled sampled my gut microbiome for the first time, and maybe it was an enjoyable experience involving a very large Q-tip. And I I feel like maybe the future is we have to do this every morning, and it says, you know what? You've got a lot of those gut bacteria that are really good at extracting energy from what you're eating, you should, you know, you need to cut down on consumption today, maybe have a probiotic, maybe, you know, it it might be as sort of, if you want that personalized recommendation and your gut microbes fluctuate every day, maybe we are all going to have to be going into the stall with a giant Q-tip every day. That sounds so appealing. (laughs) I just try. I mean, it's it's not all jetpacks, people. It's not all (laughs) jetpacks. And as weird and gross as that might sound, it's not actually so far off from where we are now. We do have a lot of people who have subscriptions. That's Jessica Richmond from Ubiome again. And what they do is they look at, you know, as subscribers, they're they're often charting the changes in their gut in regard to their own habit changes or in regard to sort of natural fluctuations, where often people have something they're kind of not sure what's going on or they're trying to optimize something specifically to, to either alleviate a symptom or to have, um, you know, for weight, weight loss or weight gain or something like that, and they want to see how their microbiome changes in response to that. And on top of the microbiome, we might also start tracking something called our metabolome. Yeah, so metabolomics is the study of all the chemicals in our body. And there are, as of the latest reading, tens of thousands of those. And then it's also the study of all the chemicals in the metabolomes of foods, which is another tens of thousands of chemicals. And then it's kind of the way they all interact together. So it's this crazy, complicated science that David Wishart, who we spoke to, um, he's at the University of Alberta, he thinks it could be, teasing this all out, could be more complicated than understanding the human genome. Because the thing is, when we... We already have all of these tens of thousands of chemicals circulating in our body, and then we ingest something that has those tens of thousands of chemicals. And we don't typically just eat one meal that is oranges and one meal that is steak and one meal that... So then we're combining all the different metabolisms in our food as well. And that combination and the interactions between all of those chemicals as they meet in our body is uncharted territory for the most part. But... What they are finding is, as they start to chart it, that it does have an effect on then how we, you know, process that food. So instead of counting calories, our future selves may be combining our microbiome with our metabolome to come up with super specific tailored meal choices and food combinations. You know, when we were kind of imagining a future scenario, and we did this for the 
um, for our episode as well, we were talking about this. We we're kind of imagining that you would walk into a store and you would have something that had all the information on your metabolome. And then it would take a snapshot of whatever you wanted to eat. And it would do all these weird calculations and tell you how it would match up with your metabolome and whether or not you would get a certain amount of calories or a certain amount of nutrition. And it would be maybe a different readout than somebody next to you shopping might get which just seems completely crazy, but that's sort of, you know, the spiraling out of what this scenario might be. And so Nikki and I, when we were when we were talking about this, Nikki and I kind of spiraled and we were thinking, well, would this mean in the future that you could have some sort of printout that was like, well, if you want to eat that Twinkie or if you want to eat that chocolate chip cookie, then you should eat these other foods with it because those compounds will help protect against the absorption of the sugar in that way. Like, it could get kind of crazy. Now, If I'm honest, this all sounds totally exhausting. How are you supposed to even order food at a restaurant? Or just even family dinner. I mean, to me, this is the downside of going in this direction. Like, I'm... I... I I feel as though... I mean, Michael Pollan calls this way of thinking about food nutritionism, where you just sort of prioritize all of this... uh, effect on your health over the other aspects of food, which are our connection to our environment and connection to the people around us, which are very, 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 very important, too. And here is where we run into one of the big issues that I think a lot of people have with our increasingly quantified selves and that will get worse in the future. It's a lot of work, and it can sometimes make things that should be enjoyable into something else. Right. And because, you know, to go along with what Nikki was saying, it takes away the pleasure from food, right? You know, if you're if all you're doing is quantifying everything and you're quantifying calories and then you're quantifying your blood sugar spikes and then you're quantifying, I don't know, what what these particular foods will do together. And so you should eat them together. You miss out on the incredible pleasure that food brings you. And that to me is one of the biggest points of it. It, It's the it's the social aspect of it, but it's also this very sensual thing that you get to do multiple times a day. And I would never want to give that up just to kind of get all these numbers that might make me a little bit healthier. I, I feel as though, you know, it, it's possible to imagine, but to want is a different matter. Some people might want this kind of detailed personal tailoring, this spreadsheet-approved life. And it's okay to want that. And it's also okay to not want that. Every single person that I talked to for this episode had different opinions about how much and what kind of data they want to gather on their existence. I do the one thing that you said every woman does, and every month on my calendar, I track my period. I don't do that. I don't do that. I leave it. I mean, I'm, I, I, I see where I am on my like uh, birth control pills, so that does it for me. I track nothing. I track people's birthdays so I don't forget them. Does that count? Oh, I don't even do that. I forget people's birthdays all the time. (laughs) I write and I write down, I'll tell you the other thing I do. I write down what I gave people because I found I was giving people the same gifts two years running. Oh, that's so smart. I should totally do that. (laughs) That makes me sound like I'm 72 or something, but yes, truly it happened. So I track that now, but that's really it. (laughs) When I'm sporadically going to the gym, I do track my workouts. And when I was going regularly, I would track them regularly and, you know, keep track of what I was doing. I have found that whenever I have, so, you know, I mean, as a, as a podcaster and blogger, you know the feeling, right? And when I, when I have a blog and, you know, there was a time when I used to obsessively track my stats. And I found my, my perspective getting very warped. I, I would literally be thinking, okay, what should I write next to get more hits? 
And at, at some level, at some point, I started find, I started looking back on myself like, what am I doing here? People have very different philosophies about what they want to know. And I'm so clear. There's sort of this continuum, this, you know, you can view it sort of as a Likert scale of, you know, on one side you have, I don't want to know anything about my health. If I'm sick, I'll go to a doctor, take care of me, healthcare system. And then the other side you have, I want to know everything, whether it's useful or not. Maybe someday it'll be useful for something. And I'm very far to one side where I want to know everything. But there are a lot of people who just aren't. That's just a... In my experience, it's just a philosophical orientation. Some people want to know and some people don't. Um, my partner and I have very different views on this. He quite likes the fact that his data is tracked. He likes the fact that he doesn't have to spend extra time type, type, typing in a search term or that Google knows where his home base is and can instantly calculate a journey for him. He likes the fact there is an evil data overlord who can help him. But for my part, I massively dislike companies having too much data on me, partly for the fact I hate advertising. I hate the idea that advertising is being customized to me. But just like counting calories or whatever we replace calories with, the big question that we'll all have to tackle in this future is why? Are we happier when we track things? Does it make us better humans? Does it help us understand ourselves and others better? Does it make us better friends? I don't know. And I think that the answer will be different for everyone. They'll, you know, they'll follow me on Twitter and then they'll link into me on LinkedIn and then they'll try to be my friend on my fitness pal. Okay. So now you can see, okay, so you know where I work and you know what I like. And now you're friends with me on Facebook. You know what, what animals I have. Now you know what I eat on my fitness pal. Oh, now you're friends with me on Fitbit. So now you know how I'm sleeping. Oh, look at that. Now you're following me on 23 Me, So you know how many diseases I'm going to have in the future. You know, at what point do you have to tell your friends, how much information do you need on me? to fucking pick up the phone and call me. What do you think? Do you track anything about yourself? Do you hate the idea of tracking? Where do you draw the line? What would you like to track that you can't? Tell us. Leave us a voicemail at 347-927-1425 or send a voice memo to info at flashforwardpod.com. For instructions on how to do that, you can go to flashforwardpod.com and find them there on the homepage. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth, and is part of the Boing Boing podcast family. The intro music is by Asura and the outro music is by Broke for Free. Special thanks this week to Robert Brenner, Casey Broughton, Rory Carroll, Suzanne Fisher, Sheila Gagne, Eddie Guimont, Tamara Krinsky, John Olier, and Matt Weller. If you want to suggest a future we should take on, send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. We love hearing your ideas, so keep sending them. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in the episode, email us there too. If you're right, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, we would really appreciate that. There are a few ways you can do it. You can go to our Patreon page where you can donate to the show. And if you donate, you'll get cool things like our newsletter or your voice in the future. But if that's not in the cards for you, you can head to iTunes and leave us a nice review or just tell your friends about us. That really does help. That's all for this future. Come back next week and we'll travel to a new one.